Hey, good morning, River City Church. My name is Brad. Uh, I'm a pastor here at River City. Uh, you know, one of the things I get to do uh, as a pastor and kind of in my role here is I get to do uh, a lot of premarital counseling. Um, some of you in this room, I've done your premarital counseling, and, and I really love it because I think that, like, what we get to do when we do premarital counseling is, like, we get to give people this gift of really looking deeply into their relationship and giving them tools uh, to understand each other. But inevitably, there's this thing that happens, like, every time we do premarital counseling that like one of the purposes of it is we're trying to cut through like the caricature of if you're in this room and you've been married for over five years raise your hand okay over five years not very many of us we're a young crowd but over five years about the five year mark like all the facade starts to fade fade away right and you're like "Uh oh that's not changing about this person, right? Like, I thought he would get over this. Like, my wife has been picking up, like, socks that I left three years ago in places we lived for a long time. So I'm just bad about that. I, I lose socks and the cap to the milk. These are two things I can't keep track of. They just go elsewhere, and I don't know what happens, right? And, and there, there are funny things like that, but then there are deep things that we're trying to help people really see who they're marrying, see who this other person is and not this caricature that they've drawn up in their minds. Uh, one of my goals as we work through Mark, and I think one of the things we're going to see today is that our goal is that we do not have a caricature of Jesus. That we don't have a, a picture of Jesus or an understanding of this man that inflates certain things about him and diminishes other things about him. That we don't look at him and we just try and construct this Jesus that meets our needs in the given moment. But instead that we have a very real understanding of who this man is and was so that we can fully be in a relationship with him and learn from him and the way in which he lived. And so as we finish out this morning, Mark chapter 1, we're going to start to see the way that people caricatured who Jesus was versus the very clear mission that Jesus was on uh, to establish uh, his message of him as, as the coming of the kingdom of God coming near and calling people to repent and believe in him. Uh, so we'll start this off. We're in Mark chapter 1. Uh, we'll pick it up at 21, and we'll be working through all of the first chapter today. Uh, we'll have the verses on the screen up here if that's helpful. You can feel free to follow along in uh, a Bible if you brought one. Uh, we've got some in the back if you need one, and if you don't have one at all, just take that. That's a gift, um, or you can always follow along on the device in your pocket um, that magically has the Bible. What an amazing day we live in, right? All right, Mark chapter 1, starting at 21. This is this. They went into Capernaum, and right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at his teachings because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not like the scribes. Just then a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue, and he cried out, Yes, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw himself into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. They were all amazed, and so they began to ask each other, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. At once, the news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. 
Now, now what we see here in the book of Mark is we see a a practice that is going to become kind of the normal rhythm for Jesus as he travels in the early part of his ministry. That Jesus is going to come into these areas and towns and he's going to go to the synagogue and in the synagogue he's going to teach. That this is how he's going to uh, relay this message, this truth uh, of who he was and the kingdom that he was ushering in. This closeness to God, this restoration of the sonship, the daughtership of people to God in the way that had always been intended. And so Jesus goes into the synagogue and he begins to teach in this way. And we see this demon approaches Jesus. There's kind of this dramatic scene where Jesus uh, uh, exercises this demon from a man and then word starts to spread about Jesus. I'm all over the region. We're in this region of Galilee, but specifically in Capernaum right now. Now, what, what does Mark want to at first call out about what Jesus was doing here? It says Jesus was in the temple and he was teaching with authority. He was teaching with authority. His teaching stood out to the people that had gathered because the way that he talked, the way that he spoke, the things that he said here were different than the scribes and other teachers that they had heard before. Mark doesn't give us any content in this section of what Jesus was teaching, but what we are going to assume is that he's leading back into that core truth um, from just a few verses prior in verse 1 of this teaching of the kingdom of God drawing near and repenting and believing in this good news, this gospel, this euangelion, good news. That's going to be a word we repeat throughout. So Jesus is heralding this way to return to a right relationship with God through the coming of Jesus. And so Mark wants to draw out, though, that in this teaching, this teaching that he performed, that even just the way that he spoke and the way that people received his words was unique. Now, when we look at Jesus' teaching as a whole, if you've read through um, other, uh, other Gospels, Matthew, uh, John, Luke, maybe you've read through Mark before, uh, uh, three things that strike me about the teaching of Jesus. Uh, one is that the teaching of Jesus uh, cut right to the heart of men and women. Like Jesus seemed to have this understanding, and, and even still, this is one of the ways that like, I think Scripture testifies to its truth um, in, in our, uh, kind of our mind and our soul and our heart, is that we read it and we're like, man, that is a diagnosis for what I feel. That the teachings of Jesus cut directly to the greatest conflicts that we have in our lives, the greatest anxieties that we have, what we become absorbed with, consumed with, um, the things that uh, could kind of lead us into a, a, a rough path. Jesus' teaching exposes the hearts of men. Jesus' teaching is direct. He doesn't cut corners. Sure, Jesus uses stories and parables, and we'll see some of that in Mark, but ultimately the teachings of Jesus are direct. And finally, the teachings of Jesus claimed the very authority of God. I think this is what struck the people that heard Jesus' teaching here in such a distinct way, is that they hadn't heard someone speak in this way before. Now, we come around on Sunday, and like we, we, we dig into the Word of God, and ultimately what our goal is, is to hear the Word of God through Scripture. Like, maybe you haven't noticed this, but like, I don't speak with the authority of Jesus, right? Like, this isn't my job. And, and, and if you're at a church and, and the preacher uh, wants to claim that he himself speaks with the authority of God, run, okay? Even if the coffee's good, right? Like, the, the goal of a teacher, a preacher, is not to be the voice of God, but to expound upon what God has already said about himself. And so we have in this book, and that's why it's amazing that we have the Bible, we have the authoritative word of God. The very 
words of God to direct and instruct us in a way of living. And so I I think for us, this is a really formative point as we work through the book of Mark, is how are we going to receive the words and the teachings of Jesus? Are they going to be stories to us? Are they going to be kind of warm, moral platitudes to think about? Are they going to be like Aesop's fables and we're like, oh, that's a cute little story and maybe I can get something that makes me feel good out of it? Or are we going to read the words of Jesus in Scripture recorded by Mark and Matthew and Luke and John? Are we going to read those as they are the very authoritative word of God? This obviously doesn't uh, just happen with the words contained in the gospel or Jesus' words, but with the Bible as a whole. Are we going to read scripture? Are we going to relate to the words of Jesus as authoritative? Now, that's going to be challenging because we're going to come up against parts of this that are going to do exactly what the words of Jesus do. They're going to cut to our heart. They're going to make us, uh, they're going to make us feel things. And maybe some of you are like, I don't like to feel things, okay? Like, uh, they're going to make you think. They're going to challenge the way that you currently live. And so our goal is to believe that because God is good, because God is the one who made you and I, that he knows what makes us tick, and he knows what can ultimately fulfill this joy that our hearts are longing for. And so he's given us his word to point us to Jesus, to point us to a way of living that brings us near to Jesus, that we might have peace and joy. Will we relate to these words as authoritative? So right off the bat, they they are exposed to this authoritative teaching of Jesus, and and they are uh, kind of, their ears are peaked because they haven't heard someone speak this way before. But then we have this uh, miraculous thing that happens. In the the midst of this authoritative teaching, uh, this demon-possessed man approaches Jesus. And what is that? Have you come to destroy us? So initially, he just says the name of Jesus that everyone knew, that he was Jesus, that he had come from Nazareth. But then he says this, he says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, the minute that this happens, Jesus' action is to do what? He shuts that demon up, right? He's like, be quiet, be silent, get out of this man. And we're going to see in a few verses down that these other demons are going to confront Jesus as he's teaching and healing. And his first move is going to be to silence them that they might not call out who he is. Now, now why is this going on here, okay? Uh, I think a lot of us, when we read this, think, oh, Jesus is trying to keep, his, keep it a secret who he is, okay? Jesus is trying, he doesn't, he doesn't want people to know yet. He's worried if they find out that they're going to flock around him in a different way. He, he's trying to keep that a secret. And we, we read that and we think that because there are people in the book of Mark who he will tell, um, don't tell people, I've healed you. We're going to see one in just a few paragraphs. But I don't think that's what's going on here. The, what's going on here is that we're seeing a power play happen. That commonly, uh, uh, when, when, when dealing with demon possession in the ancient Near East in this time period, being able to speak someone's full name was a sign of authority and power, saying, I have ownership, I can lord over you. We'll see Jesus, actually, when he exercises demons other place, he will name them. He will call them out as who they are in Scripture. And so what this demon's trying to do is he's trying to show that he maybe has power over Jesus, which, of course, Mark is very clear that he doesn't. 
And you'll notice that the way that Jesus exercises this demon um, isn't like a, a horror movie that you maybe have seen. Um, in fact, it was even really different than the way that people would have experienced um, exorcisms that we read about um, in the ancient Near East. He, he doesn't have an incantation. There's no special ceremony. He just speaks and the demon is gone. And that's why the people are astonished that they see the authority of Jesus play out in this way, not only in his words, but in his authority um, over the evil spiritual realm. Now, like I said, we're going to come up uh, against other situations in a moment where we see uh, demons coming to Jesus. Um, that we're going to see this throughout Mark. In fact, it's one of the themes of the book is this opposition coming against Jesus in the form of the demonic. And so maybe you read this and you ask this question, like, why, why are there so many demons in the story of Jesus? Am I to see this as like a normal thing for my life? Well, I think the truth is that the reason that there are so many demons in the stories of Jesus, the reason that we understand this demon's goal as to say the name of Jesus, to one-up his authority, to undermine who he is, is that there was an intense spiritual battle going on in the life of Jesus here on earth. That Jesus is flocked to by demons because spiritual opposition to the task and preaching of Jesus was kind of motive number one for the devil, who we read in the Bible, controls these evil forces. That his goal was to cease the preaching of Jesus. What Mark has established for us is that the mission of Jesus was to proclaim to the world who he was, was to preach repentance, and was to call people of the good news that the kingdom of God had come near through Jesus coming. And so what the devil wanted to do and what, uh, what Mark is calling out here is a sense of spiritual opposition to what God was trying to do. So the quantity of demons that we see, the way that Jesus silences them is to communicate to you and I that there is nothing in this universe to which the authority of God was greater than any evil that could come up against him. That Mark wants you to have this sense that the moving of the message of the gospel, the moving of this truth, this good news about who Jesus was, it was fast moving and it was unstoppable. That's why we said Mark repeats this word over and over again immediately. Um, um, our Bible uh, tries to like not get you caught up in like too much repetition, so it translates it translates it different ways. So like when you see like right away or or very quickly or at once or immediately, these are all the same word that Mark is using to show you that the gospel is moving and nothing will stop the message that Jesus wishes to preach. So Jesus' fame is beginning to spread. His authority is beginning to be established. And these miraculous things are starting to happen. We'll see more of those as we pick it up in verse 30. Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever. And so they told, and so they told him about her at once, immediately. Get it? So he went to her and he took her by the hand and he raised her up. The fever left her and she began to serve them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they brought him to all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The whole town assembled at the door and healed many who were sick with various diseases and drove out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up and he went out and he made his way to a deserted place where he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they, they found him, they said, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let's go out to the neighboring villages so that I might preach there too. This is why I have come. 
So the disciples here seem to take note of what Jesus was able to do. And so they tell him of Simon. This is who we'll know as Peter later. They tell him of the sickness uh, that she had. That his mother-in-law is laying in bed with a fever. And this is a real risk to her health. We're to assume this is a woman who's at least um, in her later years of life. And this was a a time period where lifespans weren't quite as long. And and even now, uh, a fever obviously can be a dangerous thing. And so she is hard up on her bed with a fever, can't move, and they go to tell Jesus of her sickness. Um, I think one interesting note, uh, it's interesting that Mark uh, records this instance of of the healing of Peter's mother-in-law because it's it's likely that, that Mark was the translator who, who works for Peter later in his life, and it's likely that most of Mark is all the account of Peter's experience, his firsthand experience of Jesus. So it's not surprising uh, that, that he records this story in the book of Mark. So Jesus heals her, and, and we see that what Scripture wants us to indicate is that that healing had an immediate effect, Right? This wasn't like Jesus prayed for her and then a few weeks later she got better from her fever. What the text says is they they healed her. He's there with her and after he heals her, she pops right up and what does she do? She starts to like cook dinner, which is pretty amazing, right? Like she starts to make a meal for them. This is likely the end of the Sabbath based on the way that this uh, timeline plays out in this chapter that this all started with teaching in the Sabbath. And so now it's time that we can cook again after the sun has gone down and she hops up and she starts to make a meal for them. Uh, Not lost in this is the fact that her response almost immediately is to serve Jesus, is to care for him, is to point out how grateful she is for this healing that's brought to her. Now, we're going to see healings like this happen throughout the book of Mark. Uh, uh, one thing that I think is really neat there, that when we read verses that talk, that is, that is the same word for saved. That when we read verses that talk about our salvation, what scripture is pointing us to is that Jesus has healed us from our sin. That Jesus came to save He came to heal. He came to not just leave us uh, free from the ailments and ills of this life, but he came to leave us healed from our sin, the very core of what was wrong, what we needed help with. And so he heals this woman, and then uh, we just kind of see like this, this raucous thing start to happen, right? says that they start to bring Jesus to people who need to be healed, those who are demon-possessed. And then it says that it seems like this, this line outside the door forms. It says everyone in town, right? Everyone in town with an ailment is at the door, lined up out the door, and Jesus is just healing, and he's casting out demons. And like this is just, to me, an amazing scene, isn't it, right? Like, like, think about this. Think about uh, today, if we all found out, like, that there was a man here in Grand Rapids who had the ability to heal illnesses. Can you even imagine what that would look like? Like, have you seen it when a new Chick-fil-A opens, right? Like, they have to put cones, and we have, like, five of them now, and I love Chick-fil-A, and I'm, like, lined up for the new one, but it's ridiculous. Like, we have other ones, and still, they open a new one, and it's like, sorry, Meyer can't open this week because the entire Meyer is now aligned for the Chick-fil-A because we're just not, we're not getting groceries. We have a Chick-fil-A. Why would we do this, okay? Like, can you just imagine what it would be like if, if your spouse had cancer, if your child was sick, and you find out of this man who can heal. 
And so people flock to Jesus. And, and I just picture like the joy that was taking place in that moment. As people brought their loved ones, as people who, who were blind and deaf saw and heard for the first time because of the miraculous power of Jesus. What an amazing thing. And so you can imagine Jesus is, is up late into the night healing these people. There's this crowd that's forming. And so the night ends, Jesus wakes up early in the morning to go out and his pray, go out and pray. And the disciples wake up and they're like, like, where's Jesus? Like, Jesus, come on. So they charge out to Jesus. They say, Jesus, what are you doing out here? Don't you know the following that has happened, right? He's like, hey, did you, did you, did you see on Instagram like how many likes you got on this last night? Like, how can you be off here praying and being by yourself? Come back to town. Like, there's, there's a crowd. People want to flock to you. You're an influencer right now, right? Like, there's 80 pairs of free sunglasses in your mailbox. People are so entertained with you. And what does Jesus say? He says, no, let's move on. Jesus says, let's go on to the next neighboring village so that I might preach there too. This is why I've come. Now, what's Mark trying to show us here about Jesus? Now, what Mark's trying to point us to here is that the fact that people were flocking to Jesus, they were flocking to him not to hear his message and his words, but they were flocking to him to be healed of physical ailments. Now, certainly healing of physical ailments was a sign of Jesus' power and authority, it shows us his compassion and his love, but it ultimately, we see her was not what Jesus came to do. He didn't come just to heal physical ailments. Jesus says, no, let's move on to the neighboring villages so that I can preach the message that I was sent to preach. So that I can share the truth of who I am about the way back to relationship with God through repentance and trust that the kingdom of God in Jesus himself had come near. He says, that's what I came to do. So let's move on. <coughs> Instead of continuing to heal and be flocked to, he moves on to preach. Now let's back up here a second though to, to where we find Jesus in this moment. Because it's too beautiful just to pass by, right? To so go back to that picture, Jesus is up late healing. He's probably tired. I mean, this is, like we said, this isn't, this isn't just a physically uh, a, a strenuous thing. This is a spiritually strenuous thing. Not only is he healing, he is all night long casting out these demons who are coming to attack and try and stop the mission of God. Jesus is beat. But where do we find Jesus? Is he sleeping in? He's like, yeah, I had a long night last night. I'm just going to hit the snooze button a couple times, right? No, we see Jesus off alone praying. Now, really important thing to call out here when you look at this. It says, where was Jesus? It says, he was out and he made his way to a deserted place. Now, and that word's translated there, deserted place, but this is a word that we've seen actually a couple times in the book of Mark already. This is that same word for wilderness, this is that same word. Uh, you, could, you could really literally translate it, uh, the lonely place. 
So Jesus is off, and he's in this lonely place. He's off by himself. This is where um, the, the, the John the Baptist came out of the wilderness and was baptizing in the lonely place. This is where we see Jesus go just a few paragraphs earlier to be tempted and tried. Uh, we will see Jesus return to this lonely place, this deserted place, this wilderness. We will see him go there to pray uh, before every major junction of spiritual significance in the book of Mark. We'll see it in the middle of his ministry when things are really getting crazy. We will see him then in the Garden of Gethsemane, off by himself praying before he grows to the cross to die. Why is Jesus alone so often? Why is he in this lonely place? Um, in, in thinking about this, uh, I, I'm reading this book right now. Uh, shout out to Rob, who's running the computer in the back because he made me uh, read it. It's this book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which when Rob told me I should read it, I said, I'm sorry, I don't have time for that, um, which was um, indicative of why I needed it. Um, but in, in this book, John Mark Comer talks about uh, why this uh, lonely place was so important to Jesus. And so he's reflecting on when Jesus goes off into the wilderness uh, to be tempted, and, and he says this. I'll read it to you. It says, but it's an odd story, right? Have you ever read that line that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil and thought to yourself, what's up with that? I mean, if you've been reading the Bible from Genesis to Matthew, you get that Jesus has to go toe-to-toe with the devil. The protagonist must face the bad guy to end all bad guys. Evil has to be defeated. You get that. But why the wilderness? Why alone? Why after 40 days of fasting, when he's hungry, for years this story made no sense to me because I thought of the wilderness as the place of weakness. I read it this way. Isn't that so like the devil to come at us after a long day or a long week when we're hangry and at our worst? But then I realized that I had it backward, that the wilderness isn't the place of weakness. It's the place of strength. Comer goes on to to bring out this clear truth about the life of Christ, that in Scripture, whenever Jesus was tired, whenever he was overwhelmed in his physical body, whenever he was in the most trying times of his life, that is when we find him alone with God. He's out in the wilderness. You and I live in a culture where there is constant pressure to always be connected and to always be busy. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't even think about it when somebody asks me how I am. I go, good, busy, right? I don't even, I don't even use the in-between words, right? I don't have time for those. I'm good, busy, okay? Which really means, like, please don't talk to me anymore. Like, don't give me another thing to do. We, we are busy, busy people in our era. And, and I'm a person, like, I honestly like to be busy, and I really, really love to be connected. Like, when I read this and started reading this book, and it was talking about, like, uh, this concept of, of the way of following after Jesus, meaning that, like, for some times you need to be alone and be silent, I'm like, that sounds terrifying, right? Like, the devil doesn't even have to show up. If I'm alone, I'm just scared already, right? I don't, I don't like to be alone. I, I'd rather that my, my plate was really full than, than half full. I like to be productive and, and, you know, seeking productivity and success, like, those aren't inherently bad things. But, but here's the crucial truth for us as we read through Mark. If Jesus, God himself, if Jesus, God himself, in order to fulfill the call from God that he'd been given, as a necessity needed to find time alone with God to do what he had been called to do, then certainly do, so do you and I. If Jesus, 
God himself had to go to the lonely place to be alone with God, to be silent before God, to pray and to seek out that quiet from the busyness and the temptation to just fill our plate with more and more and more. How could I think that I'm too busy for those moments? And look, don't get me wrong, I'm not calling you. Like, don't hear this like, yeah, so this week I want you to set aside three hours every day. I want you up at 5 a.m. and I want you in the woods, right? You'll you'll freeze to death. Like, this spring is not going to get stick around, okay? But like, look, I don't know, if, if you have an iPhone, you can do this. Just look at the screen time thing on your phone, right? I'm not going to pull mine up right now in front of everyone because that would be embarrassing, but just, just look at it sometime. And just look at, look at your social media usage. Look, look at the amount of time you spend texting. If you're a person that watches TV, um, maybe just get like a little crib sheet for the amount of episodes that Netflix is just putting in front of your face and really ask the question, do I have 15 to 30 minutes for this in my day? Do I have 15 to 30 minutes just to be quiet with God? To, to, to open my Bible for a few minutes so that like what my heart is filled with, to spend a few seconds praying, and then just to be still and alone and quiet. Now, if, if you are married and with kids, will this be difficult? Yes. Find a closet and put a lock on the inside, okay? But support each other in this. To give each other, and this is this is hard in our relationship because I hate being alone. So now I only have, I don't only have to be alone when I need to be alone. I have to let her be alone, and now I'm alone again. That's terrifying. Support each other. Give each other this gift of a small amount of time. I don't think it has to be early in the morning. I don't think we have to be overly prescriptive with what that looks like. But you need time to slow down and to be with God. To think about the way He thinks about you to interact with him, to reflect on the word. We need this, and we are just choking ourselves out from oxygen with our busyness. Last thing I'll say about this, the question I'd ask myself is, is is this, am I really busy? Am I really busy, or am I just tired because I'm chasing after worthless things? Am I just running so hard after comfort and success and security that I'm just beat. And then ask yourself, might some time alone with God remind me of his sufficiency, his provision, and find comfort that I can't find by seeking it out on my own? Well, next story here, verse 40, is kind of a famous one. Uh, It says this, so Jesus is on his way. He's out now, uh, we're to assume, preaching in the Galilee region, traveling to other places. And we pick it up at verse 40, which says this. Then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Then he sternly warned him and sent him away at once, telling him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news, with the result being that Jesus could no longer enter the town openly, but he was out in the deserted places and they came to him from everywhere. So so amidst Jesus' teaching in Galilee, 
we have this final scene in this first chapter of this man with leprosy coming to Jesus for healing. Now, now leprosy is, is kind of a generic term for a, a whole host of diseases that, that manifested themselves in like rashes and, and skin lesions, which was a, a big problem because that, that made them really easy to transmit. And many of those were just lifelong sicknesses in the time that the New Testament was written. And so this was a disease that, that if someone had, uh, they were seen by their community as unclean and they were often ostracized from their community completely apart from people and physical touch. And so the, the picture here is of a man who, yes, is sick, he's ill, but it's also of a man who's just completely ostracized from everyone else in his community. He's not able to uh, worship in the temple because he can't be there. He's not able to be around other people. And so we see him crawling on his knees to Jesus and speaking these words saying, hey, if you are willing you can heal me. Are, are you willing to do this? Now, the way that we have uh, it translated here is moved with a compassion. This is a weird verse. And I want to tell you this because I know some of you have a footnote, and, and this was just interesting to wade through. Um, the, the literal word there says that Jesus was moved with anger. Okay? It says Jesus was moved with anger, and then in a second when it says he sent him away, it says he angrily sent him away. So, so what's going on here? Is Jesus angry at the man with a rash? That's the question in front of us right now. That was a joke. You can laugh every once in a while. Is Jesus angry with this man? I don't think he's angry with this man. First of all, his actions don't point to the fact that he's angry. Because his immediate response when, when he's asked, are you willing to heal me? He says, I'm will willing. Um, I think instead, uh, what most commentators think is going on here is that Jesus is just angry, not just with the disease that this man has, but with the way that he's been ostracized because of that disease. That Jesus is upset with the way that society had treated this leper, with the way that he had been put out of town, with the way that he was thought about, with the way that his disease and sickness, really the way that the sin of the world had affected this man to keep him from his community and to put him in this place. And so Jesus responds that he's willing to heal him, and then he does something almost unthinkable, is that he touches this man, okay? Okay. Uh, I don't know what kind of person you are, like uh, which one of the love languages you have, um, but no matter like what you think about physical touch, like physical touch for humans is a necessity. We all need different levels of touch and contact, but, but the fact that Jesus reaches out and touches this man, a man who, who would have been seen as literally dangerous to touch, a man who likely hadn't been, uh, had any physical contact with other, any other human being in a very long time, let alone even social contact. The, the image here is beautiful. That Jesus is not only willing to make him clean, not only willing to heal him from his sickness, but willing to even in that moment give him what the healing from his sickness would actually mean. It would mean reconnection to his community. And that's why Jesus' instructions to this man, he says, hey, hey don't, don't tell anyone about this. And he says this sternly. He says this with force behind it. Because remember, Jesus' goal is not to just have people flock to him for physical healing. So he warns him. He says, hey, don't tell anyone about this. But what you need to do, he says, is go to the priest and go through the process that you can be declared clean. In this, Jesus is showing us that he's not just trying to heal him of his physical ailment. He's trying to give him the ability to step back into right relationship with his people, to be back in community with others. He's willing to heal. He gives him a touch. 
And ultimately, he tries to give him full restoration in his community. Now, it looks like ultimately this man doesn't follow Jesus' instructions. He, he spreads the word about Jesus, and because this man uh, kind of runs his mouth about this man who's able to heal, we're not even sure if he goes through the process to be restored to his community, but what this causes is more people to flock to Jesus so that Jesus is unable to keep traveling in town to these synagogues and has to be on the outskirts of town with people flocking to him. We'll close it out with this, that what we see in this small picture of Jesus' willingness to heal is a beautiful picture of the way that Jesus wishes to heal us. That what the gospel does is that the gospel, the truth, the good news about Jesus, of his death on a cross for our sin, of his resurrection from the dead to give us new life, of his ascension into heaven where he sits at God's right hand and he prays for us and he advocates for us. The gospel, this truth, touches us at our very worst when we are untouchable. And it doesn't just heal us of our sickness in the moment. It doesn't just offer us salvation for what ails us. Instead, it leaves us completely restored to God himself and the community of God in the local church. Now, there's a warning in the actions of the leper here that we need to heed. That we need to look at this and ask this, that, that, that if what Jesus wants to offer me is not just healing for my momentary sickness, but he wants to offer me the keys to this fully restored life. We need to be like the leper should have been. We need to not only accept the salvation that God has offered to us freely, we need to not only willingly accept his touch and restoration, we want to lean into the life that he restored us to. We want to accept this salvation and then not push against the way of life that God has intended for us after he heals us, after he offers us salvation, after he saves us from certain death, after he heals us from our sickness. We don't want to go on living like we're sick. We don't want to push against the people of God. We don't want to push against the way of God. We want to come near to it. And so as we close out today, I mean, that's what I'd leave you with is are you living your life like one who has received the gospel of Jesus and been healed? Or are you behaving like you're still sick? Are you running into the things that God has promised us will bring us joy? Are you drawing near to who this Jesus is? Are you heeding the authoritative word that he speaks? Or are you taking that momentary salve for your wound and then running back in like nothing has changed? God is good and gracious and has offered us salvation that we can't screw up, that we can't lose, that isn't dependent on anything that we do. But he's offered us also a pathway forward, not just to healing in the moment, but to joy in our lives. Now let's pray and ask for God's help that we would uh, seek out not a caricature of Jesus, but we would take his authoritative word and let it change us. God, we are so thankful that you we're willing to extend a hand and touch us. God, that when we were ostracized, when we um, were fit only to be ignored and avoided, that you came down and took on the flesh of a human. You became 100% man, even though you were still 100% God, that you might die in our place and restore us to right relationship with you. <clears throat> God, I pray for your help this week. 
God, where we're prone to continue to live like we're apart from you, God, would you help us to draw near to you? God, would you, would you just give us the grace to find a few moments this week to be alone with you? God, would you uh, instill in us uh, a, a bit of this compassion that we see so clearly in the person of Jesus here in Scripture? God, would we hear your word and we would let it speak into our lives with the authority that it deserves, knowing that you are God, that you are good, and that you made us and know what's best for us. God, bring to us the peace that we so tirelessly seek but can only find in you. We pray this in your name. Amen.